Gresham College presents The Philosophy of Religion by Professor Gwen Griffith Dixon. Good evening, good evening, good evening. And for the fourth time, good evening. Am I getting through to you? Yes, I am. Good. Uh, My name is Sutherland. I'm the provost of the college, and I want to welcome you very, very warmly indeed. This is a a dual event. Many of you, I know because I recognize you, have been in the college on many occasions for lectures, including Gwen's lectures. Uh, Some of you perhaps haven't, and I hope you'll take a chance to find out what Gresham College is about But in some ways, it's about just what you find in this book, in a way I'll I'll come to very shortly. The college is over 400 years old, and it's dedicated to providing education for those who live and work in the city of London. It does it without government subvention, so we're not subject to the tyrannies of public funding and the bureaucracy that goes with it. I can see there are some academics in the audience who (laughs) know know how marvelous that is as a thought. But uh, we have leaflets about the college around, and I hope if you don't know much about this that you will take one, and you will see the, I think, absolutely stunning program that will unfold, and this is one of the earlier events of the season. What we're here to do tonight is celebrate and mark the launch of this book. And I say it is very much a Gresham-type book. It's uh, humane. It's to do with education, it's clear, it's got humor in it, and most of all, it's got breadth of outlook. And that's the business of education as we see it and understand it. There is a bit of a fairy story to this. Once upon a time, there was a marvelous professor of divinity in Gresham College, Gwen Griffiths Dixon, who was uh, giving lectures here, unknowing to her that in the audience, Uh, were individuals who worked for a publisher, interestingly, the SCM Press. They realized that there was a talent of considerable ability, a capacity to communicate, and a capacity to make complex and difficult ideas plain, clear, and stimulating. And so uh, they approached Gwen and asked her about the possibility of writing a book, which, of course, is now the first in a series of books Uh, the SCM core text, of which I believe this is the first one. What a marvelous start the press have got with a book like this. It's a book about the philosophy of religion, which is Gwen's business. As such, it covers and falls into the area of one of the Gresham chairs, the chair she held, the chair of divinity. Now, you may know what philosophy of religion is. If not, read this. If you do you will read this with even greater stimulus and insight. But if I can just give my quick take on it, I I quote David Hume. David Hume, one of the, in fact, the greatest philosopher, I think, from from, uh, these these islands, these islands, (laughs) islands, yes. Okay, that was Plato, Kant, and these chaps who lived elsewhere. Uh, Hume, marvelous, uh, marvelous sentence from Hume. He wrote, whereas the mistakes in philosophy are merely ridiculous, those in religion are dangerous. I'm glad to say in this book there are no mistakes in philosophy and as far as I can see, no mistakes in religion. So Gwen has avoided both being ridiculous and dangerous, but she's done it with style 
and with humor. And I'll just mention something that, that caught my attention. Uh, she invents titles and names and, and phrases and so on. And well on in the book, in discussing aspects of the nature of evil, she invented the title of a FIP, a freely impeccable person. Now, that, uh, that sticks in your memory. I, I had rather hoped to be an impeccably free person when I was young, but uh, freely impeccable would be even better uh, if, if one can reach that, uh, that fine status. But it's a book, as I say, negatively, without the mistakes of being ridiculous or dangerous. And in philosophy of religion, there are many examples of both. But it's a book, more importantly, that will stimulate young minds and uh, the thoughts of those young minds to look to a new way of organizing our life and our society together. And we all know right now how important that is between communities and religious communities in this city and more broadly across the world. I'm delighted to be involved in this. Philosophy of religion used to be my trade, so it's specially dear to me. Now, immediately after me, I'll ask David Rubens, who is a very distinguished philosopher, uh, who is head of New York University in London, who writes in uh, important areas of philosophy and who has been involved in some of the ideas that Gwen has taken from, her, from Gresham with her to set up a new institute. So I'll ask David Rubens to follow on immediately, and then Gwen will speak, and then talk freely amongst ourselves thereafter. Thank you very much. David, where are you? There he is, right. Gwynne's book has a very conventional title, Philosophy of Religion, but it's not a conventional book. And given the humor that I also noticed throughout the book, I thought probably Gwynne had wanted to call it something far more exciting and sexy and probably had been dissuaded by the publishers. But I'd like to speak about uh, two and a half ways in which it's not a conventional book and why it's a very special book. It is, by the way, a book I like very, very much. Uh, First of all, Gwynne says in the preface, the academic area of philosophy of religion has traditionally worked almost exclusively with the philosophies of religions of Western civilization. There are, of course, other philosophies and other religions. And she notes that uh, these other philosophies and other religions are studied in specialist institutes, often called Oriental Institutes, the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, the Oriental fac uh, subfaculty in Oxford, and so on and so on. But they don't normally engage the, the, mid the, the mainstream philosopher. And Gwynne wants to change that. She brings into her book uh, examples from many religions uh, and many different philosophical approaches as well. So Islam, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Shinto, uh, we get a diversity and a richness, an intellectual diversity and an intellectual richness that is really quite unusual in this field. And of course, as you would expect, it deepens the book. It makes it more serious. It makes it more, more exciting, and it makes it just intellectually richer from every uh, point of view. Uh, Gwynne says, nevertheless, I am convinced that it is time to integrate the thinking of different religions philosophical cultures into the English-speaking world of philosophy of religion. And this, of course, she does. Now, this intellectual diversity is always for Gwynne, because I know so much of what she does uh, academically, intellectually, and also in terms of her, of her new think tank, uh, that um, 
she connects intellectual diversity with a kind of socio-political commitment to diversity and to toleration and to understanding. And I really do think this book is just about the most marvelous example of both that intellectual diversity and the, the raison d'etre behind that intellectual diversity being this political and social message. And I really do admire the book for that aspect of it. Another, this is something that, uh, that uh, the provost himself has mentioned. Uh, another point about the book that makes it, uh, uh, I think, not a conventional uh, approach is that it's got an enormous methodological self-awareness and self-reflection, which is unusual in books of philosophy. It's, it's odd because when philosophy becomes very self-aware and tries to talk about its own methodology, it often isn't very good at it. And yet when you do it in the course of doing something else, you pull it off very much better. And I think that's exactly what, what Gwen has done. She talks about different ways of thinking and different ways of talking about religion. She starts off chapter one with the question, what is, what is religion? She says, for example, the word religion in European languages evolved in a particular history and culture. And she's always alive to this contested sense in which Everything exists in philosophy. You know, I often say to students, everything in philosophy is contested, including the view that everything in philosophy is contested, which is, of course, itself contested. But you get that sense in Gwyn, and this is not always the case in, in introductory books uh, uh, or books that attempt to be core texts, this tremendous sense of controversy, of openness, of, con of things being contested, of there being different points of view academically and intellectually. And of course, that message too is tied to her socio-political uh, commitments ab uh, about a tolerant and diverse society. When you have, when you recognize and you, and you, you, you honor and respect intellectual diversity, both in the nature of religion and what it is, but also in the nature of philosophy and what, is, what it is as well, then I think you're well-placed to understand and appreciate uh, and celebrate cultural uh, and multiculturalism, cultural diversity as well. Uh, that's always, I think, the raison d'etre of, of that's driving Gwyn, and it comes out admirably in this, in this tremendous sense of self-reflection. What am I doing in this book? What are the different views about what I might be doing? What might one say about what I'm doing from different points of view? Constantly trying to self-investigate her own approaches and to try to be as open as she possibly can to different approaches and different ways uh, of seeing things. Um, I, I said uh, two and a half points. Uh, I suppose the other half point is just that, that just as you would expect of Gwyn, Every chapter is ended with a little section called Draw Your Own Conclusions. Uh, and indeed, she invites the students, in, encourages the students, badgers the students, uh, or the reader of the text, to think for him or herself to take this enormous wealth and mass of material that's in the book from so many different angles and so many different perspectives and tries to force the reader to come up with his or her own understanding of the material in the book. It's the best kind of introductory text, the best kind of student-oriented text one can possibly produce. Uh, it's a wonderful book. I commend it to you. Uh, I will certainly read it with great pleasure over and over again and use it wherever I can. And I think that it's a great testimonial to, to, to Gwen's intellectual abilities, but also her political and social vision. Thank you. This must be what it's like to win the ashes, I have to say. <laughs>
Except as far as I know, we're all still sober at the moment. <laughs> Thank you very, very much for those, those two undeserved, highly generous uh, comments and introductions to the book. I think David has picked out the things that were probably closest to my heart and most uh, important to me, and I'm incredibly moved and, and grateful that, that something has actually clicked in that text. And I am immensely relieved that Lord Sutherland, who's an extremely distinguished philosopher, thinks I am neither ridiculous nor dangerous. Um, but I have to say, if he thinks that, he has been talking to my mother. That's clear. <laughs> if he thinks I'm not ridiculous, he's not been talking to my husband. And if he thinks I'm not dangerous, he's not been talking to my children. So. <laughs> but seriously, I am very moved and very grateful. And in particular, would like to thank all of those at Gresham College for all the work they have done. Um, to, to hold this book launch um, for us and for the, the publishers. Um, there's always the danger that this is a sort of Oscar-winning moment and there is tedious chains of thanks to people that you don't know. Um, indulge me for a few seconds because I have to thank uh, a number of people who have contributed so much to this book. Of course, SEM, first and foremost, and it is one of those moments where without SEM it wouldn't have been written because I wouldn't have bothered, I'm afraid, to put this all into print. Um, and Barbara Lang was extraordinarily patient, tolerant, and cheerfully persistent. I think the verb used either by her or me was stalking at one point, but um, it was the most pleasurable kind of stalking I've ever experienced. Um, so I would very much like to thank Barbara and all those at SEM that were so committed to something that I was dubious about at first. Obviously, I need to thank my, my family, no matter how ridiculous and dangerous they think um, I am. It's not merely for generalized support, but for very specific support. I do have a theological mother and a theological husband, and so the, their imprints have also been left on the text. I have two children who have trained me in argumentation with great rigor and patience, sharpened my thinking in that unique way that many of you will recognize. Um, and my sister as well, an author and literary figure herself. But there are strings of people who are both friends and colleagues that I would also like to mention, such as uh, Vicky Muhammad, who has contributed so much in pulling the text together, and uh, colleagues, many of whom are here, such as Sharon Hansen and Anne Primavesi and David Rubin, of course, um, who have helped to improve my, my thinking and point out my errors. And other theological, though, if not formally academic, uh, friends such as Ali Kazmi, um, who have read, commented, and contributed, as have students as well. And the Gresham audience, who have also contributed, would recognize passages, paragraphs, um, if their memories are that tenacious, um, and may well think themselves um, partly responsible for better or for worse for what has turned out in the end. Particular thank you, though, to Gresham for giving me the opportunity to stand up here at the podium and have the audacity to, to speak to people. This really has grown out of Gresham, as you have heard. Um, in many ways, the book is, as Lloyd Sutherland said, what Gresham is about, and also, as it happens, what the new Lukahi Foundation, which some of us have gone on to create, is also about. It's about bringing scholarship directly in contact with those that scholarship should be in contact with and should be for at the end of the day. Best possible thinking, discussion, analysis directly with the communities, with our society. Not to sit on dusty shelves, but to raise the standard of thinking, everyone's contribution to debate, and everyone's contribution to what we want our societies and communities to be like.
that's what Gresham is for, and that is what our new Lukahi Foundation is, is for. David Rubin told me what I should say is something of an intellectual biography. And I got overcome with a fit of shyness, which some of you who've listened to me at Gresham will not believe, but uh, <laughs> I was overcome by a fit of shyness, from which I was rescued by my very dear friend David Mitchell, who oh, I see you here somewhere. Um, I happened to refer to myself in passing a couple of days ago as a continental philosopher, in other words, someone in touch with German and French philosophy. And then I hesitated. I'm actually from the middle of the Pacific, uh, from the tropics, from Hawaii, which has uh, marked me for better and not at all for worse. And David, as if catching the same thought, said, no, you're a Pacific philosopher. And I liked that because of the pun. Yes, because it refers to my origins and to the Hawaiian anecdotes and words that crop up and the, the, the taste for somewhat sort of playful, flippant inappropriateness in lectures and elsewhere. But I also liked it, of course, with the peacemaking associations of the word, which, um, in a sense, David has actually already touched on. Narrowing it down, because the Pacific is rather large, I started to say, thinking, well, I'm from an island. I said, I'm an insular philosopher. And then David said very firmly, hardly that, <laughs> which I was rather touched by. But then he finally found the term which stuck for both of us, an archipelago. Archipelago. You're an archipelagian philosopher, he said. This just delighted me for some absurd reason. I thought, that's what I'm going to talk about, archipelagian philosophy. This is the, the new wave philosophy for the future, archipelagian philosophy. So if you can indulge me for a few minutes, I promise not to keep you too long, because you're standing, most of you. I thought I might just sketch what archipelagian philosophies might be like and what its characteristics are. The thing about archipelagos, which is not true of a single island, is that there's more than one of them. So you have numerous ones. There's a pluralism in it. It's not just one continent or just one island. However, they're all there in a relationship. Neither of them is to be viewed as isolated. They get their identity from being in that relationship, even though each island has its own identity. And that's strongly what I believe about philosophical and religious cultures and traditions, and is really one of the driving forces behind this particular book and even the way I tried to write each chapter. It's that theme that the word lokahi means, diversity and unity, a unity of diverse elements, but also the harmony that comes from diversity when they can work together towards the same ends or towards a common good. Both of these need preserving in the face of the other, both the diversity and the harmony of cooperation. One of the things that um, has disturbed me, and in a sense why I was persuaded to write this book and to write it in the way that David described, was the fact that the, the question of dealing with other religions or other cultures in philosophy has been treated as a question, as a highly problematic area, something likely to be done badly or in a simplistic way. You can't just throw together Sanskrit philosophy and British philosophy from the 18th century and deal with them together. There are many um, reasons why that's so, and I agree with them. But the question of some kind of multi-religious or interfaith approach has been treated as a question, an option, but a problem. And I want to say to these people, who are you teaching? You can only think that teaching a monocultural philosophy of religion is possible and that the question of understanding other cultures doesn't arise if you ignore who your students are. 
in London anyway. In my classrooms, traditionally, I would have a student newly arrived from Ghana, someone who's been here from Korea for six months, someone who grew up in the Tower Hamlets, maybe Bangladeshi, someone from Scotland who may be white, and so on. There is already multiculturalism in the classroom, and even if you only teach philosophy in the English-speaking language, you are already dealing with the question of how do we understand other cultures, because that's what your students are trying to do. Certainly if you teach in London, and increasingly in most parts of the world. You can only really maintain the kind of monoculturalism of philosophy in your teaching if you ignore who your students are and if you ignore the scholarship that writes on the issue because they are not only English people who write about British philosophy. There is Western Islamic scholarship and there's Islamic scholarship, Islamic Islamic scholarship, and the two are often at war on a given reading list in an MA, for example, as I've certainly found in trying to create courses in Islamic studies. It's a highly political question who you put on the reading list. So this Archipelagian approach basically is one that says there are these different cultures. They do have separate identities, but they do have relationships to each other which need to be brought out and preserved, and that diversity is intrinsically desirable because it does lead to the richness that they were described in the sources, and it leads to, in the end, I believe, to greater human flourishing, greater resources we can all draw on for the challenges that we do all face together. Each of those traditions, secondly, is internally diverse, and that's something that anyone who's been to a series of migration lectures has heard ad nauseum. That, uh, it's not as if we have different civilizations, each of them all agreeing internally, but at war or clashing with the other civilization. Each of these traditions is already full of conflicts and controversies and diversities of views, which is important to bring up for a number of reasons. One, even if you're taking a, a negative view of many of these traditions and see the need for change, change happens from within the traditions, almost always. Even if your concern is not just to be the intellectual version of a lefty and totally reform your religion or amount of revolution, even if you do want to preserve your tradition, the only way to preserve your tradition is through this internal self-renewal of dialogue, self-critique. So we need to acknowledge the diversity within any single given tradition, any one single island, if you like, precisely in order to foster increasing self-critique awareness, the development and the ongoing enriching of particular traditions. It's also important, I think, to maintain that question of the internal diversity to address, to me, what is another one of these critical questions in philosophy about how we can understand other cultures, whether we can understand other cultures, whether there is an inevitable clash or an alienness about other cultures, and that has been one of my themes, because it seems to me there are two extremes which are commonly met with, both of which, to me, seem false. One is, we're all alike under the skin, and that, to me, neglects the real challenges to, com to comprehension that do exist, the assumptions that other people think just like you do, and a kind of unconscious imperialism of, of the intellect or of social relations. But the other is to think that we are so alien, we are so different, other cultures can be based on completely different concepts, that we can more easily understand our pets in this culture than human beings from another culture. Both of these, to me, seem to be false. And one of those reasons is that the very identity of these cultures and of these traditions has been formed in this relationship of the archipelago. These traditions have become what they are because for millennia in some cases, and certainly for centuries, they have been in these relationships. 
Christianity, of course, developed in relationship to Judaism, and Islam developed in relation to both, and then in India. It, it began to exchange ideas and thoughts and shaped the Indian traditions that it met with there. Each of these traditions has become what it is because it has always exchanged ideas and arguments and concepts with the other cultures. These cultures have not, over time, evolved in isolation. We have actually grown up together. We do share many of these concepts and ideas already. So we cannot even understand ourselves without understanding the other traditions that help to shape us and give birth to our own thinking. I think I've talked enough, but there's one more thing that I would like to say, which is that I think many of these philosophical issues shouldn't look for a philosophical answer. Certainly not a simple, single philosophical answer. In many of the explorations of other traditions, other cultures, and other religions, I think what is actually more used to us both on the socio-political side and on the intellectual side, is a sort of ethical compass or a set of guidelines. And I actually have a nice short one that uh, I personally find very useful, which comes from Hawaii, so it's very archipelagian. And it actually um, came about from a king of Hawaii in the 19th century, King Kalakaua, and he was giving some advice to his wife before she set off what then would have been a very large very long journey to Britain. First time she'd been here, first time she'd been outside Hawaii, and 200 years ago, obviously, things were quite different then. So he gave her a little piece of advice, and this was his advice. Go carefully. Don't offend. Don't rush into thinking that you've actually understood something. It's yeah. very good advice. And your best guide is compassion. And I actually think that is brilliant advice for how to engage with people who seem different, cultures you think on the surface you can't understand, or any of those social dislocations that we experience in the face of people who are, seem somewhat different than we do. Very wise advice indeed. So what I'd like to say to you tonight, to tonight is now enjoy the party, drink, eat whatever canapes are left. Um, thank you very much, all of you, for coming. Go carefully, and wherever you go, let compassion be your guide. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, just uh, as I present this uh, little bouquet to Gwen, I, I, I have to say I came here prepared to make a long speech, especially over one of Gwen's favorite philosophers, a certain gentleman called Johann Georg Hamann, who knew Kant and he knew Goethe, and his main interesting work was a criticism of Kant's ideas in, in a thing called uh, Metacritique über den uh, Purismum der Vernunft, which means it's just the criticism of Kant's uh, of critique of pure reason. And he was dead against what Kant said. However, I saw the provost outside, so I'm not going to give that speech, because I said to the provost, did you hear my last speech? And he said, I sincerely hope so. So <laughs> I just want, to give, just want to give Gwen these flowers. <laughs> For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.com dot ac dot uk